tinfoil hat. Oh, what the fuck are you guys even talking about? Global controls will have to be imposed, and a world governing body will be created to enforce them. Welcome to tinfoil hat. We, we, we go deep, homeboy. Eric, open your mind. Drink. From the fountain of knowledge. There's lizard people everywhere. That's some interdimensional shit. Wake up, Aaron. This is only the beginning. Dude, you just blew my mind. Are you ready to get your mind blown? Revolution will be podcasted. Yes. Yes, it will. We are back in the saddle. We are back. In our old stomping grounds, we decided to come back to the old hood to do an episode for you guys as 2019 comes to uh, an end. An amazing year. Uh, so much growth. So much love. Uh, so we decided to come back. I know you guys are crying for a little bit of your Aaron fix. So we got him back. Aaron, back on the show for another time. Okay, there I, we go. I don't usually do top of the show. Okay. So. Uh, guys, a lot of great stuff going on here at uh, Tim Foyle. Ha- uh, we are blessed. Uh, December 20th, we will be at the Mississippi Studios in Portland. You can go to samtriplee.com, grab those tickets now, and then just announce I will be live all weekend at the House of Comedy in Arizona, January 9th through the 12th. That is House of Comedy, Phoenix, Arizona, Going back to one of my favorite places to gig. Uh, I love that club. I love the owners. The Bronsons are wonderful people. All these and more will be available at samtriplee.com. Okay? Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Patreon has been on fire. It is a wonderful place. I'm putting tons of content in there. I'm putting hours and hours, two, three hours of content on there. We have the uh, the Secret Side of the Mad Hatters, which is an audio podcast. We have Conspiracies Now, which is more the loosey-goosey conspiracy talk with my new co-host, White Trash Amber, who we all believe is a Chinese spy. Uh, we call her out on it, and we watch her squirm. And then we have, for the record, that is where uh, I call call centers for help on credit cards, banking, whatever. And when they tell me they're recording the call, I record the call. And then I try to let them know about what's going on in the world of conspiracies. It is a great way to support the show. Second, I want to tell you about uh, tinfoilhattshirts.com. That's tinfoilhattshirts.com. Go to uh, tinfoilhattshirts.com and you will get all your tinfoil hat swag there. Flat earth shirts, um, uh, Unabomber shirts, you name it. It's all there. Go check it out. Now, I want to say something really quick because some of you guys will be watching this on BitChute or B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E. Uh, what is going on with the show and the YouTube channel? Look who's late again, running on Mexican Drake time. Uh, joining us in studio, one of my favorite people on the planet, my good friend and yours, Xavier Guerrero, XG in the place How to be. How are we doing? Welcome, XG. Sorry, traffic. That's all right. Hey, dude, there was some something going on. You already know. It's it was I I was cursing people. <laughs> XG is here. Um, so I just want to tell you, we are going to be hosting our shows on a new website right now. We're going with brokensimulation.com. Okay. That should be very ready very soon. 
And what's going to happen is you're going to get the full episode on that. Brokensimulation.com, okay? And then we're going to be uploading clips without any ads and stuff like that onto the YouTube because they're coming for us, you know? Uh, they say they're going after people on the right. They're not. They're going after truth. People who are dropping truth. Yes, there are some crazy people out there. Uh, some people go out on the fringe that have had their ep- their channels taken down. I do not agree with that, and I will get into that with our guest today. XG, I want to check in. How are you? I'm doing good. What's new? Same old, same old. You look the most balanced I've seen you in a while. You mm. always have. A, usually, you have a little crazy in your eyes, but today you seem very. It was early balanced. in the morning. Okay, all right. How Coffee. are you? Good. How was your Thanksgiving? It's great, man. What'd you do? Mexican shit. Ate What's tamales. Mexican Thanksgiving like? Ate tamales, hung out with the family, got really drunk. Is there any? Uh, do you actually use turkeys, or is it just all talk? No, there's tamales in there. There's some, there, but there's, there's turkey. no turkey. There's, no, turkey, there's turkey in the turkey. tamales. Yeah, okay. that's for sure too, though. What a wonderful world we live in where illegal Mexicans <laughs> celebrate stealing land from Native Americans. What a wonderful country we live in. Uh, but I'm glad to see you. You guys made a better place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't sure. want to be an Indian. I'm going to lie. Yeah. None of that stuff. Or, or 7-Eleven Indian dot, dot, dot. But the point is, let's get on with the show. I'm glad you're here. It's always a pleasure to see you. Joining us uh, via the power of Skype uh, is a uh, wonderful human being. Uh, today's show, real quick, is brought to you by BetDSI. BetDSI for all of your betting needs. Go to BetDSI, use the promo code HAT100, and you will they will double up whatever you put into your deposit, okay? You put $100 to do $200, up to $500. Dude, if you're not betting on sports right now, you're missing good action. NBA, UFC, boxing, football's on fire. Everything's great, and it's all from our friends. You can pay in Bitcoin. How great is that? The NBA's on fire. The Clippers are murdering the world. Please help us. But help our sponsors who help us. So that's it. That's it. I don't want to hear about how long that was. Okay. A lot of big news coming. I'll be dropping some news on you guys very soon about things going on in my life. But I want to get to our guest. He is the director of the Libertarian Institute and the editorial director of antiwar.com. It is a real honor to have this cat on uh Everything he does is like what I think we in the truth community should focus on. Please welcome Mr. Scott Horton, everybody. How are you, Scott? I'm doing great. Thank you both very much for having me on. Well, Scott, I love your work. Everything you do is what I'm into. You know, I've always been anti-war. I'm always anti-establishment. I don't, you know, on this show, we preach very hard that it's not groups, okay, but it's actually, um, it's, it's power structures. And they get us all to fight with each other all the time, this group versus that group. But when at the top, it's all the same people. Um, I want to get into, tell us a little bit about the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com before we start. Sure. Well, first of all, um, antiwar.com is really the most important project in the world, I think. I'm really happy to be a part of that. I've been working for them since 2004. And uh, essentially, well, I'll tell you, the first time that I found the site was in 1999 during when Bill Clinton was bombing Kosovo. Well, it was bombing Serbia to break off Kosovo from Serbia. And my friend showed it to me and I said, ah, well, what's that? Some kind of socialist thing? Because as anti-war as I was, I hadn't found any real people I identified with in in the anti-war movement really as a libertarian. 
uh, not too much anyway. And uh, I had a lot of left-wing anti-war friends uh, at the time. But then she said, no, check this out. And they're, they're running Ron Paul articles on the front page. And a few clicks around, and I can see the head writer there. He died last June, but uh, all that time since way back then and up, up through last June, the head writer, Justin Raimondo, is essentially a cranky old Archie Bunker paleoconservative from Queens, New York. Um, and even though he was a gay rights activist from San Francisco, he was essentially an anti-war Buchananite, not an, any, any kind of anti-war left-winger, but a paleo-libertarian, really. And he was more libertarian than conservative, but uh, he's a cranky old kind of right-winger and brilliant. And at that time, and, and especially during the run-up to the Iraq War, he was the most important writer, and, and really during the whole Bush years, he was the most important writer in America, Justin Raimondo was. And he had the key to what all was going on with the neoconservatives and explaining what you know what had really taken place in uh, 2001 and two, and the and the seizure of power by the neocons in order to launch the Iraq War. And so I just found myself right at home, really fast with those guys. And it remains the most important project on the internet because unfortunately we've been unable to put ourselves out of business here, uh, but we are trying really hard to do so. Um, the Libertarian Institute is the institute that I created with the great Sheldon Richmond. And also uh, William Norman Grigg back in 2016. And unfortunately, Will died in 2017. Uh, but we've kept it going. And we've now added Pete Quinones, who you might know from Twitter, Mance Raider, the uh, freedom through memedom author uh, and, and great fighter in the meme wars. And uh, he's Memes. now our managing editor. Yeah, he's great. Memes are very powerful, but I want to get into the, you know, we, you, you know, you've had, you mentioned a couple different political uh, affiliations, uh, political parties. We have, you know, you mentioned that this guy uh, wasn't a left-leaning anti-war guy. And then you look at kind of where we are in 2019 and this bizarro world we live in where leftists, I'm not going to call them liberals because at my core, dude, I am a liberal. I am a equality to all. All freedom of expression, freedom of love, freedom of all that stuff. I don't even know what the political term for that is. When I was growing up, that's what a liberal was. I, I, I'm starting to think maybe that's going along the lines of libertarian now, but I don't even know what that, that term would, that group would be called, but I am that. But... I, as we watch the news and these Twitter, these uh, blue check idiots, uh, we're seeing people who associate with the the left, the uh, progressives, uh, the social justice warriors being pro-war and be not only just be, you know, being pro-war when they know they'll never actually fight any of these wars. We have, uh, you know, we have Meghan McCain, who's who's uh, uh, endorsing Joe Biden. Like, what is the bizarro <laughs> world that we live in? And did you see this coming? Because I never would ever believe that. Yeah, well, so it, it's a complicated mess. But, you know, you're absolutely right about the tragedy of it and the reality of, of how this has worked. And I think, um, yeah, unfortunately, I did kind of see it coming. Uh, with the election of Barack Obama was what really happened, because at that point, the Democratic Party no longer needed the anti-war movement 
in order to gain power. They'd won seats in the House and Senate. They'd won control of the House and Senate, actually, in 2006, standing on the back of Cindy Sheehan and her anti-war movement. And then in 2008, two years later, they got Barack Obama. And so, but at that point, he was inheriting all of America's wars and meant only to expand. And so then the idea was, uh uh-oh, we better all really shut up about the wars because what we really care about is partisanship and our dear leader being in charge and not their guy. And so for eight years, you had all this pressure on people on the left. And I want to get into what you say about the political spectrum on the left there a little bit in a second. I love it. But but broadly speaking, people on the left had a lot of pressure to just kind of stay silent and not really harp on that issue. If you hear them criticize Obama, they go, well, I don't really like the drone wars when – the drone wars were the least of it. I mean, the regime change in Libya, the half regime change in Syria that led to the rise of the Islamic State and what is now an ongoing genocide in Yemen. These and never mind doubling the size of the Afghan war, pulling troops out of Iraq, but then having to go right back again for Iraq War Three after he created the Islamic State and had to destroy it. I mean, this is a foreign policy that's Twice as bad as George W. Bush's that he inherited from the madman, George W. Bush. And so but that narrative was never really established anywhere in mainstream democratic politics. And and okay, and I'll get back to that spectrum in a second. I keep wanting to take that tangent. But now in the Bush years. So now in the Bush years, I mean, pardon me, in the Trump. These guys all look alike to me in the Trump (laughs) years. Trump comes in. And what's the major accusation against him? The whole thing is a put on by the national security state itself, by the CIA and the FBI counterintelligence division to frame him up to try to make it look like what? Like he's a disloyal American under the control of a foreign power, the Kremlin, no less. And so now the national security state, the CIA and the military and the FBI and the national intelligence director and all these people, they are now foisted on the liberal left, the Democratic Party left, as the heroes who are here to protect the true American way from the evil usurper interloper Donald Trump who never should have won that election and only did usurp Hillary's rightful throne with the help of the Kremlin. It's totally illegitimate, you know, not my president, but to the nth degree that anything would be would be okay to stop him from being the president, to overthrow him, to invoke the 25th Amendment, to come up with any reason to impeach him because of how unpatriotic he is and because he doesn't put America first, despite the fact that that's his big slogan. So now that is like you couldn't have invented a greater like even a funnier psychological experiment to sort of play on liberal leftists that like how dumb and horrible can I make you by jerking your chain this way and then this way. And then here we are. So I had joked um, right when Donald Trump was coming into power, I had joked on Twitter that I wonder how the liberals are going to find a way to come slinking back to the anti-war movement now that Donald Trump is in charge of all of the wars. And then the answer was they didn't. The answer was Russiagate prevented them from coming slinking back to the anti-war movement. So instead of becoming, again, the anti-war movement of the Bush years, and hey, guys, we sure missed you for eight years during Obama, but it's nice to have you back. Instead of that, we got treason summit. How dare Donald Trump meet with Vladimir Putin? And, you know, 
<laughs> not accuse him to his face of falsely bringing the election for him and all these things. And so, yeah, it's like setting off a, a nuke in the brain of where uh, of what liberals used to be and just replacing them with a blank slate written, you know, scrawled on by John Brennan and the worst criminal torturer murderers out of the Central Intelligence Agency of all places. And so they're just nuts. And now I want to say real quick about the liberal left thing and what have you, because I totally agree with you that in, in my era growing up, the definition of liberal as we understood it, very broadly speaking, was, as you say, accepting, interested in art and in reading and in learning new things and to not being close minded. But yeah, being being, you know, generally a easygoing person or whatever could encompass. But, you know, that's more of like a way of being in society. Politically speaking, and this is probably quite unfair, but it's just the way that the terms have been co-opted and used and whatever, is I, I think really what you have is, well, you guys are looking this way. So the left, it's more like the liberals, and this is the best I understand it. The liberals means the people have no principle whatsoever. They're just Democrat partisan voters, and they go along with whatever the hell they're supposed to go along with, right? From roasting the Branch Davidians alive to genocide in Yemen to impeaching Trump over false accusations of treason with the Russians to whatever stupid thing they're supposed to believe. They're essentially just Democrats. That's what they are, mindless Democrat types. Then you go further to the left, and you get the progressives. And the progressives, it's like a conservative to a Republican. These are people who are actually really more about the ideology than the partisanship. And they really care more about the principles. And they're more likely to be good on foreign policy. Say, for example, I'll, take, I'll name a bunch of good examples right now. Glenn Greenwald, Aaron Mate, Matt Taibbi, Michael Tracy, and all these guys. They're not really hard left communists. They're, they're progressives, but they're ideological folk. And so they don't believe in Russiagate. They hate Trump. They don't believe in Russiagate because that's a stupid CIA lie. What are you, stupid? And so they have principle. They okay. Just what am stuff. I? What am I? Here, I'm going to tell you what I believe in, and you tell me what – because well, I always thought progressives were the super crazies and that the liberal, the old school liberals were just like, you know, for people, anti-war, for freedom of expression. Like those are things like anti-regime change, anti-war on drugs, anti-racism. These seem like, like, duh, everybody's that. But it does not seem like that. When I say anti-racism, I, I don't know anyone who's pro-racism, but... Or right. I know they exist, but you know, pro, uh, pro, pro, um, gay life. I mean, if you're gay, be gay as long as uh, pro any sex that doesn't involve hurting children or sexual assault. Uh, you know, a, a change to the healthcare system that brings down costs of of everything so people can afford. It. What is that person? I'm asking Scott Hoare, who is that person? Because I always I mean, thought that was liberal, but you're telling me it's progr- – and I'm not – this isn't an argument. This is a real question. Like I thought it was yeah, no, liberal. I, I mean I think – OK. Well, it depends on how you want to bring down those health care costs. I mean what you're saying, you could broadly fit with, – with what you just said, you could broadly fit within the progressive movement or you could really be a libertarian too. It depends on what you think needs to be done about those things really and your first premises and where you're coming from on a lot of those issues. But, I mean, depending on 
what you really think about the monetary system, what you think about federalism in the Constitution, what you think about property rights and what you think about, you know, natural individual yeah. rights. Yeah, I'm all or, for all those. So yeah, maybe so, I'm a progressive libertarian. Can I make up a new group? Yeah, there's sure. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, left leaning libertarians and they're libertarians who really, you know, like my partner, Sheldon Richmond at the Libertarian Institute. He really thinks of libertarianism as a part of the left. You know, separate and distinct from status. We're very anti-state. We're individualists and property rights. But in a sense, that's a very radical position. That's not a conservative position. It's a very pro-market position. And so that sounds like the right in a way to some people. But what it really is, is it's the ideology of every single person has the right to their own property, the right to be their own king of their own castle. And that you know, not that the king doesn't have a divine right, but just everybody else has just as much divine right as he I does. I couldn't agree more and, that. That's kind of what you know, I'm that's, into. Yeah. So, and uh, you know, liberals, conservatives, and libertarians all claim that heritage going back, right? It's a question of how consistent they are with it and that kind of thing. And But see, there are a lot of ironies in all this stuff too because, you know, if you if you actually look at the liberals, the reason the liberals are so bad is because they've made their peace with capitalism. But capitalism is good. But the problem is they're not libertarians, they're liberals. So to them, what they mean by making peace with capitalism is they're not socialists in that sense, so that's good. But they just make their peace with business in America as currently constituted, meaning they are essentially the hired vessels of the arms industries of the bankers of the pharmaceutical companies of agribusiness and all the the insurance companies all the biggest financial interests that you would think of as associated with the Republican party they control the Democratic party too and so it's not i mean thank goodness that they're not socialists like real socialists who want to nationalize all the property and turn this place into a communist hellhole like in to the nth degree but instead, it's the worst compromise in the world. Instead, they're just the loyal servants of Lockheed Martin. that, And they have long-range bombers they got to get rid of. Let me and ask that's you their priority. Let me ask you something real quick. So I, uh, I, I'm completely understanding of what you're saying right now. What I want to ask is, for the longest time, up until recently, if you were going to go, who is the pro-military-industrial complex party – I would tell you, most people would say the Republican Party. Like during the 2000, uh, 2001, when you were talking about you were getting involved with it in 2001, 2002, after 9-11, all that stuff. The people who were very pro-war were the right. Who The people who are pro-military industrial, uh, police industrial complex, who want bigger budgets for the police department. It, it, most You would, up until recently, is the is the right, the, the Republican Party. Again, we've seen this kind of switch, wouldn't you agree? But as far as I remember, unless it's a Mandela effect, I remember that the people pushing for pro-war, when I was, uh, when during, I remember when Janine Garofalo was like, dude, we can't go into these wars, we can't push, and we saw people going, there's no weapons of mass destruction. There was this giant push from the right to that. They they attacked us. There were these weapons of mass destruction and all that stuff. Right. How has that changed? Or has it changed? Okay. Because I don't know if you could go to a Republican. I mean, there's libertarians yeah. who are very anti-war, but there's a lot of people like regime change, regime change, regime change. 
Yeah. So here's the thing about it, man. You're not wrong about anything you're saying about the right. I mean, I endorse every everything you're saying about that era. But the question is, well, essentially, it's a matter of discrimination, right? Like if you really want to break this down, you got to chop it all into little bitty pieces. And what we're really dealing with, it, what we have dealt with, say, since the end of the Cold War, right, the beginning of the 1990s, is we've had the Bush-Clinton-Bush-Clinton consensus. Obama. Right? And it was almost – they almost made us choose Bush versus Clinton again. But then uh, at least Trump stopped that. But I agree with so that was, point. Yeah, so so the if you look at Iraq War II, it's true, and, and she deserves credit. Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats, they were in the minority at the time, so it was safe for them to do so. But they voted to oppose that war. But the Senate Democrats, they voted for it. Joe Biden, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, yep. and uh, I'm pretty sure Tom Daschle and all the leadership, all of those guys, they all voted for it. Not, I don't think Bernie Sanders did, but um, all the major Democrats did during that time. And you know they represent essentially this centrist bipartisan consensus. And you'll hear people criticize the neoliberals and neoliberalism, and you'll hear them criticize neoconservatism. And those things are best oversimplified to mean the center left and the center right. So what are the Clintons? The Clintons are conservative Democrats. And what are the Bushes? They're liberal Republicans, right? John McCain, rhino type centrists. And this is where the consensus is for all of the craziest stuff, right? These people claim the name moderate, but they're not moderate at all. They're the ones, as you just said, they want to start wars. What the hell is moderate about that? They ran up a $23 trillion debt. That's, in other words, $20 trillion since Reagan left office. Since the Bush-Clinton consensus took hold in America, they've ran up $20 trillion worth of debt. They've overextended our empire and made a mockery out of everything good about America in the name of exporting all of this corrupt, crony militarism and imperialism and, and all these things that we have no right to do in the first place. And so – in that sense, it's no surprise, really, right, that the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans. I mean, after all, Janine Garofalo, as good as she might have been on the war back then, she's an actress. She's not a senator. And I bet if she was a senator, she'd have had more balls than Al Franken, who was another one of those kind of left fellow travelers who did become a senator and, of course, sold out all his principles immediately if he ever had any and was never a good anti-war force the whole time he was in the Senate. Um and so I, I then, yeah, yeah. So, go on. Go sorry. sorry. So I, I sure. completely agree with everything you want. I, I, I you know, I, I Jimmy Dore, I studied Jimmy Dore. He, you, you might have a different political view of Jimmy Dore. But oh, he's great. He's uh, he's talked a lot about how, like, the Koch brothers brought in the Clintons. I remember when Clinton was Clinton is the only president I've ever seen live. He came to my university when he was running. I was going to UNLV, and he uh, he was running for president. And you know, my my roommate Chris Ray uh, had brought an anti Clinton sign, and uh, Secret Service came and grabbed it from him. There was some weirdness, and I thought, wow, that's really crazy that the Democratic president presidential nominee is like kind of stifling censorship. You know, kind of bringing censorship and stifling free speech. And I I knew something was up then, but you know, it was very much played like. Um, that, you know, here it is, George Bush 
versus Clinton, you know, Monster Truck Monday, you know, and it's like, they're going to go at it. And, and, oh, my God, Clinton with the upset. And what we really didn't know that was Clinton's always been working with Bush. That's where they were smuggling all the cocaine into. While everybody was watching Miami Vice and thinking Florida was a coke place, all the real damage was being done in Arkansas and through Arkansas. And they, they had him, whether it was Hillary grabbing him because they knew he was secretly gay or that basically she knew he represented a royal family. A lot of people think he's uh, either a Rockefeller or one of those power families and that they just all played ball and it was a perfect sport. But, you know, it was all a giant lie. But what I want, and you know, here's what I want to get into you about more about the theater of, uh, of Washington, D.C. We recently had the Kavanaugh hearings, right? And mm-hmm. you saw people... On the, the the right spectrum, I'm not going to say the right, but the spectrum of, of the political thing, losing their skulls because they're bringing up this thing. And it was a, a trial without, you know, he's being tried for sexual crimes, but it really wasn't ever brought any charges. And for me, I think that was all bullshit theater and that. The truth of the matter is, is that Kavanaugh is one of these go both ways kind of guys, meaning that Kavanaugh was part of the cover up of the Vince Foster murders and that this trial really wasn't about his sexual escapades and that they were just using that to basically frame his hearing, not about what he really thought about. But actually, this woman who comes out of Stanford, who could easily have charged him with sexual assault in the, in the country, in the, in the state that it happened. And she didn't do that, but she brought it out, even though there were no witnesses. The only two people who could vouch for it was her husband, who knew him much later, and her therapist, who knew him much later after the fact. But she, her, this lady, I forget what her name was, um, she basically um, is head of the CIA. Uh, intern program at Stanford in like Silicon Valley. Uh, the Kavanaugh accuser put that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they framed it as his sexual exploits when in reality they didn't want anyone discussing the fact that he helped uh, author the, 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 the Patriot Act. He's a pro-police state. He's pro-searches uh, without warrants. He thinks the president is above the law. And we keep going on forever and ever and ever, all this stuff. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that kind of presumes that anybody would have brought that up in the Senate to oppose him or made that much of a big deal about that, which I think is pretty unlikely. And honestly, I I... I really don't know that much about that case, but my impression is the same as what you're saying, that this was essentially some trumped up stuff that was a distraction ultimately. But then again, I don't think you need a complicated uh, explanation for that beyond just partisanship. And, you know, maybe this lady really did know him and hate him from back when. And it's really important. You know, this is not my issue at all. And it may not be yours, but we should never forget how important it is to certain factions on the left and the right of who sits in the majority on that court. It's a divided court. It's you have a couple of swing votes either way. And at stake is the right so-called, however you frame it, to have an abortion and to the right and to the left. That is Everything that is the bottom line of the culture war. And if they can keep a conservative who might vote the wrong way out of that chair and keep a liberal in there, they might do anything 
over that alone it has nothing to do with because who's going to bring up the Patriot Act? They all voted for the Patriot Act. They all love the Patriot Act. Nobody's going to crucify him over that. You know, Rand Paul might say something, but that's about it. And the other, the Democrats who were good on it, they're gone. You know, I think Udall and whatever his name was, they're both defeated and drummed right out of there. So there's nobody in the Senate who I think would have even busted him over that. I certainly agree with you that there was, you know, seemed to be very little substance to the accusations. But after all, I mean, the whole thing is a circus up there. It's an imperial court. There's, you know, the budget next year is $4.75 trillion. And you can think of that entire thing as just the biggest honeypot in the history of yeah. all of mankind, yeah. that every interest on the planet has in doing whatever it takes to get influence over that government and the power that it wields. Scott, I want to ask you, what is your, we've heard some already your take on Trump. You know, I do, I've been doing a lot of shows lately and I always get asked, what do you think Trump is? And I, I, and I'm constantly trying to figure out what he represents. Um, I've broken it down into like maybe three different things that could be, uh, he's an agent of chaos. He, he was brought in for whatever reason, and he's in there disrupting the situation based on things we see like the the Paris climate uh, agreement out of that, the TPP out of that, the free trade agreement out of that, uh, brokering deals with North Korea uh, when they when the CIA and the military industrial complex uses them as a ra- rattle rouser, you know, to get us to crank up the military expense. I could keep going on and on and mm-hmm. on and on about, uh, you know, the trade wars with China and all this stuff that he has done. I am pro all that. I think, and I wonder if is if it is business as usual, or uh, there's another thought that he is uh, uh, maybe he's theater. He's still part of this theater that's going on in Washington D.C. But then maybe what he represented, which was an outsider, uh, got away from them, and now people like you and all these other wonderful researchers on uh, on the internet that are putting out the real content have kind of said, oh, "We don't need Trump. We're going to keep putting out the truth, and they're never going to be able to put the genie back into the bottle. They're never going to be able to put the cat back into the bag." Or is it a third thing? That he's an agent and the destruction of all these these institutions that they've been building over, if not decades, centuries, mainstream media, free trade, uh, uh, the military industrial, all these things that seem to be taking a beating, that something out there knows the how this plays out and is okay with destroying these trillion dollars of industries. The, you know, the... the, the uh, child sex trafficking rings that are blackmailing everybody that have been exposed. Like these are things within the last three and a half years that we've that nobody ever talked about before this, and now they're exposed. And I don't think you put the cat in the back. What is your take on the whole thing? Well, I'm not sure all those things go together, but I mean, for example, Epstein was prosecuted originally by the Obama government. So I, don't know, I wouldn't think of that as like a big watershed or anything. But um, a lot of what you say is right in terms of uh, breaking up the international structures, at least undermining the international structures of 
you know, the American empire is what it really is. You know, they call it the liberal rules-based international order of friendliness and cooperation and whatever kind of euphemisms. Um, but essentially, the multinational institutions that America has built, the United Nations and NATO and the World Trade Organization, all the different agencies of the UN for that matter, it, essentially all that at the bottom line, really, it's all a fig leaf for American imperial power. And it's all backed up by the American army as the world army in order to enforce it. And so Trump, I think the bottom line is that I think I would take your, fir your, your first characterization is the one that I agree with. I, I look at Trump, I take him exactly just right at face value. I mean, the guy, I've known who he is since I first saw him on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous in like 1983 <laughs> when I was a little kid in elementary school. Like I've always known who he is. Um, I haven't followed his career very closely all along or whatever. But the guy is just as transparent as you can be. As Bashar al-Assad said last week, hey, he's the most transparent president in American history. So you got to give him that. Um, I think he's exactly who he seems to be, which is a rich old Fox News watching golfer who's sick and tired of wasting all this money on all this stupid stuff. And I don't think he has a a real coherent ideology where you could classify him and really say, well, he's a right wing nationalist populist. I guess that's the closest thing you could say about him. Um, but so, so in other words, he really just doesn't believe in spending all this money. America, essentially, the world order is kind of like this. America allows the uh, countries where we station bases to have tariff-free access to our markets, but they can keep their tariffs on our markets. But as that. long as you let us keep our military there, right? I so that's in that. Europe, that's in, in, the, in the Pacific. And so Trump is looking at it simply as a businessman, right? Not in an ideological way, but he's just looking at it as an American. I wouldn't even say like a nationalist, but just as an American – Someone who's not hell-bent on this internationalism. And he's saying, well, wait a minute. Why, we are taking a hit on trade here, which I don't necessarily see it that way, but forget Austrian economics for a minute. We're, we have these trade deals that are bent toward these other states, and all we get in exchange is we have to pay the cost of their defense for them when the Germans and the Japanese are perf and the South Koreans are perfectly capable of of – uh, maintaining their own standing armies and protecting their own borders. And why do they even need us in there at all? Which is absolutely a correct take. But the problem is he's not any kind of real libertarian. He doesn't have any kind of real even ideology of capitalism, a real funda fundamental understanding, I think, of capitalist economics. And so if you tell him, listen, our wars in Syria and Iraq are costing us money, he gets all piping mad. But then if you tell him, hey, we could steal that oil and make money. Then he goes, oh, OK, then that's perfectly fine. Then if there's money in it for us, then killing and stealing is perfectly fine. I just don't want to kill and just waste money killing. If we're going to kill, bring me home some oil for it. And that is essentially his viewpoint on things. So, you know, you could call that a kind of neo-imperialism and nationalism. But of course, the whole thing is stupid and ridiculous. It's not like we're getting enough oil out of Syria or ever could get enough oil out of Syria or Iraq that it would pay for our interventions there, which are costing in the trillions of dollars. Um, you know, six and a half trillion dollars have been spent on the terror wars in the 21st century so far, which is probably a hundred times or a thousand times as much as we spent on Middle Eastern oil this whole time. 
whole thing is completely stupid and crazy and wrong on that basis. I but, mean, we, we've seen where he tries to pull uh, troops out of Afghanistan. So we were, a big moment was coming. The Taliban was coming to America to meet with, to meet with Trump to talk about pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, because make no doubts about it, everybody, we are there for one reason, to protect poppy fields. We There's pictures, and, and Scott, if I'm wrong, I, I, please correct me, but we are, we are there, we're protecting poppy fields. And so Trump is going to meet with this Taliban, and what happens? The people who want us out decide it'd be a good idea out of nowhere to blow up a base or attack a base, like because that's logical. If the people who are there want to leave and all you have to do is kind of come to an agreement, why not blow up a facility or attack some soldiers or thoughts like that? Do you think Trump is trying to pull us out of Afghanistan? Well, in fact, so there are recent developments. I mean, they're actually beginning to pull some more troops out now and they're saying it's not tied to talks, but they have restarted the talks. I mean, in fact, so what happened was when Trump first came into power, he was like, I want out of here. And they tried to make him escalate, and he resisted until August of 2017. So for, you know, essentially for half a year, he said no, 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 and dragged his feet. And then finally, after they got rid of Stephen Bannon, they took him out to Camp David. And there's a picture of Donald Trump. He's surrounded by all these generals and CIA guys on both sides, and he's got no one on his side. And they just made him escalate the war at that point, and he did. He gave him 10,000 more troops and escalated, and he has massively escalated the war there. And he's just – they've killed tens of thousands of people just this year and, and tens of thousands more last year. It's been really bad. At the same time, he's had Zalmay Khalilzad, who is a very influential and powerful neoconservative Mandarin in D.C., lead these talks. He's the guy who picked America's original sock puppet president of the country after 01. And he's over there and he's been dealing with the Taliban. He clearly has marching orders directly from the president. He doesn't work for the secretary of state. He works directly for the president as a special representative and negotiator. And he had a deal. And then as you're talking about, it all got blown up at the last second. But the thing was, it wasn't the Taliban truck bombing or suicide attack that that really uh, botched the thing. It was Trump that botched it himself because what had happened was America has been absolutely unable to make a deal with the Taliban all along because under Bush and Obama, the deal was Taliban, you have to make peace with our government that we created in Kabul first and only then will we negotiate our exit. And the Taliban's answer was wrong. You leave and then we'll consider negotiating with them, but we're not negotiating a thing until you're out of here. And that's it. And they stayed at war this whole time. And they're in the winning on the, you know, all the momentum is with them. They have no reason to give up. They're in the position of strength. So Trump came in and Trump and Khalil Zad had a heart to heart, apparently. And they decided, look, we are going to essentially give in to the Taliban on almost everything. We are going to get out. The, all they have to do is promise to keep Al Qaeda and ISIS down and out and not host them and harbor them. And we will leave them alone and good luck, Kabul. Okay, good luck to the government that we created there. Then at the last minute, and that was going to happen, and that was actually the only achievable deal. If you're going to have a deal with the Taliban at all, that was going to be it. We leave and hope that you guys don't keep fighting. And then at the last minute, Trump said, here's what we're going to do. Right before we sign the peace deal, I'm going to demand that the car, the, the, um, the uh, Ghani government in Kabul 
and the Taliban leaders come to Camp David and that they sign a peace deal between each other, promising not to fight after we leave. Well, no groundwork had been laid. They'd spent two years negotiating our exit at all. Now, at the last minute, Trump insists on a comprehensive peace deal. You sign here, you sign here, based on no previous set of understandings or agreements or anything. And the Taliban said, well, look, we'll come, but we're not signing anything with this government. If that's what we were going to do, we'd have done that under George W. Bush, pal. It ain't going to happen. And so then Trump said, oh, well, because of a suicide attack in Kabul, I'm calling off the thing because the Taliban, they just pushed their luck too far. But it was him who ruined his own stupid deal. Mr. Deal Closer, who can't close any deals ever, ever. You know, and same thing with Korea. The state was like enemy. But see, they drew a red line. They said, look, these guys, they can't. we can not allow them to have nukes and the missiles that can deliver them to D.C. Well, that is what you have now. They have – we don't they haven't miniaturized the nukes, but they do have nukes and they do have missiles that get to D.C. So we're at the point of America's stated red line, whether it's Obama or Trump. So what are we going to do? Launch a war against them before they can miniaturize a nuke and put it on top of a warhead? Are we going to finally de- realize they are in a position of strength because of George W. Bush, who forced them out of the treaty and into nuclear weapons in the first place in 2002 and three? Now they have nukes, and now if we really mean it that they cannot have nukes and missiles, then we have to come to the table and deal with them or have a war. That's your premise. So what does Trump do? Trump says, let's deal. And then you saw and you described it perfectly how they did everything they could to screw it up, including John Bolton coming out and saying, yeah, we're going to do it on the Libyan model, (laughs) which was they gave up their nuclear technology and then America murdered their president, launched a regime change and lynched him on the side of the road. When you see, I don't know if you knew this, saw this, but when you see someone like Howard Stern having Hillary Clinton on, trying to almost humanize this war criminal vampire pedophile, uh, and the pedophiles might not be your uh, your your expertise, and that's a lot of stuff we talk about on this show. Not that you know, just like how hey, her husband's in on it. I mean, somebody just murdered her husband's Mossad child rape pimp in his prison cell. So I don't think that's a conspiracy theory at all. You know, much respect, my friend. So I am, you know, I, I just want to put this out. The reason Epstein through my research, what the, the original time Epstein gets arrested is because he did it because Trump does a backdoor deal on him on a Florida property. And this Deutsche banker who got a, just found hung in Malibu is the guy who greenlit the, um, the, the loan when Trump shouldn't got. Cause you know, the whole thing is like, is Trump uh, paper rich cash poor? And that's, that's the word in the researchers that I trust have told me that they mocked kind of Trump and Trump backdoored him on this deal. He got a, a got a loan that uh, he wasn't supposed to get to buy this property. And that's where the war begins. And that's mm. why, Trump uh Trump is the only person to actually when the the uh victims lawyers uh ask to interview him he's the only one who comes down and actually answers all the questions there's actually a video you can watch where Epstein's victims lawyer said Trump's the only one who came down and answered all of our questions so so I think there is a little bit to that earlier but what I want to get into 
is uh, this Russia gate, this Ukraine gate. Here we see the same fucking game plan played over and over and over and over again with no I mean when 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 Clinton gets in okay there's so there's some weird kind of similarities and uh, correct me if I'm wrong and I I would like to know uh between Clinton being elected and uh, Trump being elected. Uh, Both kind of outsiders who come in, beat an established party uh, candidate. Their their, uh, first term is just riddled with sex scandal, sex scandal, impeachment, you know, is there anything to that? And no, I no, no, no. I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. You were you were right earlier when you said Bill Clinton was always with the Bushes, that he had been part of Iran-Contra and the cocaine dealing back then. He had was a Rhodes Scholar and was long established in the halls of power in New York and D.C. and that kind of thing. Donald Trump, you know, I think Al Sharpton said it best during the campaign. He said, you know, if you're an outsider, this guy is a liberal Democrat billionaire from New York City. But if you live in New York City, then you understand He's not from Manhattan. He's from Queens. And that means that to them, they, them, the real them, he is poor, white, trash, new, rich, scumbag who is not allowed, is not invited, who he hates because they hate him, you know. And so there's kind of I think there's a lot to that. Right. He's look if you look at it, where his fortune came from, it was essentially being a real estate tycoon. So if you can get entry into that market, which his father had already established for him, if you can get entry into that market, you can make a lot of money doing that without being the kind of power broker that we're talking about, right? It's not that he was an arms salesman to the military. It's not that he was a fractional reserve banker working closely with the Federal Reserve to create money out of nothing or you know, owned a whole bunch of farms in the guise of Archer Daniels Midland or Monsanto out Midwest or this kind of thing. He's a real estate tycoon in Manhattan. So you can make a lot of money without necessarily really representing power. And I think when he ran for office, he really didn't represent power at all. If you looked at the, all the major power factions, the only ones who said he were all right, he was all right, was the Army and the Marine Corps. And you could tell it was actually one of the first times in a long time where it was that blatant that, wow, these guys really are that political. Although in this case, what they were saying essentially was not we insist on him. They, I think, would have all preferred Hillary. But what they did do by standing next to him was say this guy is okay, and it's all right for him to be supported. And that was really important that they did. But all of the rest of the power factions opposed him. So I think that – the Bill Clinton comparison is much closer to George H.W. Bush than to Trump. I mean, Trump really is the outsider that he seems like. It's just it's so unfortunate that if he was just five IQ points smarter and a little <laughs> bit more interested in other people than himself and and what's really going on, he would be a, a lot better guy. But I think this is the explanation behind Russiagate. All right. Is that. All of if you take the most naive hopes of, say, the anti-war right um, that this guy was going to live up to all that he had claimed that he was going to be anti-war and he was going to end all of Bush's wars and bring our guys home and all of this kind of stuff, or that he was going to be neutral, as he put it, in the Israel-Palestine conflict and try to just come to a reasonable compromise that would be okay with everybody. Where there were hopeful people who said, wow, that's great. There were a lot of powerful people who absolutely went. 
And both sides should have known better. Both shot, both sides should have known that this guy is paper thin, and especially when it comes to foreign policy stuff. He likes kicking butt at least as much. Appeal <laughs> to is that, come on, Donald, we got to beat these bad guys, and he's going to go along with whatever the military wants on all that. And we, dude, I love it, man. I love your point of view. I love it. I want to ask you something real quick. Um, so uh, over the weekend or last week, the DOJ comes out and says, uh, we found no FISA corruption. Uh, I've been studying this for two, three years, man. I mean, actually four years, uh, 2015 all the way through. Uh, I, I saw it all play out. I remember when uh, Hillary kneecapped Bernie Sanders, regardless of politically what he thought. And, you know, later on, he takes the knee. We see him uh, endorse her at the DNC. But we all know that she kneecapped in the Seth Rich murders and stuff like that. And, um, and basically, you know, there was a time in the about 2014, 2015, that Bernie Sanders was called out by the DNC for basically stealing data from the DNC computers and all their uh, all their data. And and the reason Bernie Sanders is allowed back in because he goes, the guy that you're accusing of stealing all the data is who. Hillary Clinton told me to hire onto my group. And while later on we find out Hillary Clinton's completely controlling the DNC and that once again, we see that this is a plant that she's put on somebody to kneecap somebody else's fucking campaign. And that's why he was allowed back into the DNC uh, elections and got their data because it turned out that Hillary was putting plants. Now let's fast forward to Donald Trump and his transition team. Look who's on it. It's Carter Page. Who's Carter Page? Well, Carter Page was part of Bill Clinton's transition team way back in the day. He's an old, old spook from back in the day, an FBI plant uh, that was put on Donald Trump's uh, transition team, which allowed the FBI and the Obama administration to go to the FISA courts and be like, this guy, Carter Page, is up to no good. We'd like to wiretap him and everyone around him, which becomes Donald Trump and his all of his campaign people. Then we find out that Stephen Helper was uh, involved. He's an old spook from way back in the day who was who was used to spy on uh, Jimmy Carter for Reagan and bump ba ba George Bush Sr. So now we have the, the these old guard again and all these people putting on. So now the DNJ, the DOJ comes out and says nothing happened. And I know that is 100% bullshit. What is your thoughts on all that? Yeah, well, so I'm not sure about the Carter Page being a plant angle. I mean, it seems like they just lied and lied and lied about him in order to get that FISA warrant when everything he had done was perfectly innocent. I mean, if his association with Trump alone was a setup, I guess that's possible. I should read more about that. But you're absolutely on point. I, I already agree with you, I guess I should say, about the Halper angle. And, um, you know, for that matter, the uh, the um, uh, Miss Food, who they 
even to this day, they continue to refer to him as some kind of Russian agent, although that is absolutely not in evidence anywhere. It's far more likely he was working for MI6. The bottom line for your viewers uh, being that and listeners being that this thing was a setup from the beginning. And this is I guess this is not 100,000 percent. OK, like they claim they had legitimate reasons to think something this that I guess I'll give that a tenth of a percent of a thing because we don't have all of our answers yet. We don't know every single thing. But the most plausible, simplest explanation is that the CIA under John Brennan decided to frame the Trump campaign for their association with Russia. And that whether they infiltrated Page on a campaign, I'm not sure, but I think that it's very clear that they attempted to entrap Papadopoulos and probably Page too into saying or doing something wrong that would give them the pretext to launch this investigation. And I think there's been a strong circumstantial case made, uh, uh, relatively strong anyway, it's not conclusive, but there's a case to be made that Guccifer too is really just the CIA under John Brennan and that the word was that WikiLeaks is going to put out some DNC leaks and then Guccifer essentially acted as though, you know, came up with this scheme to make it seem as though he was the source of all of this stuff when really that's not true. And if you look at the timeline and the way it's laid out in the Mueller report, the way that they lay out the timeline I think is accurate. But the way that they explain what it means doesn't make any sense at all. It's much more apparent that it, it actually, even according to their timeline, it looks like that WikiLeaks, in fact, did not receive the leak from Guccifer or from DC Leaks, uh, one or both of whom may have just been the CIA in disguise anyway, um, but that he already had had the leak for weeks before they ever contacted him. And I think that is true. I just have no reason. I don't think that any of your viewers or listeners uh, have any good reason to believe that the Russians were behind the hack of the DNC or the Podesta emails in the first place at all. They were simply just entrapped in it, basically, or not entrapped, but you know, framed up, falsely accused of being behind it. And even to this moment, to this day, they say constantly, yeah, but the CIA says so. In fact, there's an article at – I just saw at Mediaite.com and they're criticizing Tucker Carlson interviewing the heroic Aaron Mate. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he writes for The Nation and he's been absolutely – I think he's the single best guy on Russiagate in our country right now um, on debunking all of this stuff. And he was on The Tucker Show. And, and they're quoting him saying, Tucker, there still is no evidence that we have seen that Russia did this. All we have are claims and, by the way, claims by the very same people who said that Trump was a traitor in league with Russia. We haven't seen it. And Mediaite reports this as though it is self-evidently self-refuting and what a total ridiculous clown that he would say that. And the way it reads, you would think that the last paragraph was going to say everybody knows they proved it. Here's the link. But instead it ends with the CIA tells us. That it was the Russians who did it, and that's all you need to know. Still, at the end of 2019, they don't even pretend 
to have demonstrated that it's true at all, that the Russians did anything at all as far as leaking those documents, which leaves us with when you take because every single one of the conspiracy theories about the Trump team all fell flat. That leaves us with nothing but the Facebook ads and Twitter ads, which amounted to nothing. There were trillions of Facebook posts and ads going by, and there was like a low tens of thousands of these ads, and all they were were clickbait to make money for this Russian troll farm, which was not connected to Russian intelligence, which was never demonstrated to be doing this as an errand for the Russian government at all, and which had absolutely no sway whatsoever on the election. Some cartoon of Hillary Clinton arm wrestling Satan, or no, she's <laughs> Satan, arm wrestling Jesus, and like, oh yeah, no, I can see how that would have changed 50,000 votes in Wisconsin, huh? Give me a break. <laughs> the whole thing, and as you mentioned about her, one more thing, about her cheating against Bernie and putting that plant in there to frame him up for stealing stuff, well, this is another part of how she actually lost the thing, was she cheated. It wasn't just that, uh, and the blackout on Bernie, but we see from the Podesta emails, whether it was Vladimir Putin or whoever it was that leaked those Podesta emails, we have in those emails what they called the Pied Piper strategy. And this was to ask for all of their mainstream media liberal friends to support and promote Donald Trump, Ben Carson, and Ted Cruz yep. above all others, and especially Trump because he is so crazy and he is the winger. He will be the one who's the easiest to beat in the fall. So it wasn't just that they hated Bernie Sanders. There was a real reason why on CNN you could watch an empty podium of Trump for an hour while they were waiting for him to show up. While Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders would be giving a speech to 4,000 people. Again, I'm a libertarian, not a Sanders guy. I'm just being descriptive here. This is how they did it. And then I'm sure you noticed too that the moment that it was guaranteed that Trump was had the nomination locked up, as soon as it was guaranteed that he would get the nomination, they all turned on him. And he went from the star and isn't he funny and isn't he goofy and don't we like to laugh along with him on the Morning Joe show and all this stuff to now all of a sudden he's the enemy. And they had promoted him in the first place because they thought he would be the easiest to beat. And then another thing uh, revealed in the uh, emails was that Donna Brazil from CNN had cheated and had given Hillary Clinton a yeah. question in yeah. advance on one of the debate yeah. questions. And what was funny about that was the question was just, what's your position on the death penalty? Well, what the hell, Hillary Clinton? You don't have a position on the death penalty that you can recite yet? It's not like <laughs> she really believes in anything, but she can at least know what her answer is supposed to be. And – and then – and what does she do? Does she rat on Donna Brazil and demand that they change the debate question to a fair one? No. She prepared and she delivered her prepared response on the prepared uh, death penalty question just like she was supposed to. And it was that kind of thing that cost her the margin. She deliberately did this to herself by cheating. Cheaters never win. And in this case, it blew up in her face and it was you know, death of a thousand cuts of her own knife before the general election could be complete. So there's some crazy, I remember watching um, Comey's testimony and he said something very, he said two things that I thought would just end all of this. And one of it was that one, Trump never put any pressure on him to in fact not investigate anything with Russia. Never. So I thought that should have ended it right there. And the second thing that he said, which I found very interesting, was that the FBI never actually looked at the servers. 
They never looked at the servers. This is this is Comey's own testimony. I watched it in real time. I said, game over. And what, what we found out was that basically CrowdStrike had gone to the FBI. So the DNC doesn't run to the FBI. The DNC runs to CrowdStrike, their security company, and goes, oh, we think something's up. Uh, I basically think they found out that Seth Rich had downloaded all the files and took off, and they needed to spin everything. Uh, So CrowdStrike contacts the FBI. Now, why is that important? Well, because CrowdStrike was founded by the FBI's uh, if Mueller's head of cybersecurity. So there's already some kind of, and correct me if any time if, if you if you've heard anything. I don't know about that particular okay. detail. Okay, so hold on. So they 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 they, they the, Comey says they've never seen any. They checked out any of the servers. Never have checked the servers at any time, and that basically they took what CrowdStrike had told them which was the Russians that hacked this. Where are the servers? They don't even know. And not only that, but so in in the Roger Stone trial recently, it came out that CrowdStrike never even did a final report. All they had told the FBI was their preliminary results that trust us, the Russians did it. And they had never even done a final report showing their work to the FBI. So not only was the FBI just taking their word for it, they were literally taking their word for it. They didn't even have a piece of paper that were even, according to the theory, where CrowdStrike had demonstrated that this was true to the FBI. For 100%. Never mind that the FBI had demonstrated it to us. And this kind of, this Russiagate bleeds right in to Ukraine gate, right? And that this, this conversation in which Trump releases the whole the what's it called the whole uh call okay um basically said he they're talking about we want these servers back what servers are they talking about and correct me anytime i'm wrong is uh the dnc servers that they were shipped out put out and put to the ukraine thoughts right okay so I honestly, I have no idea where that comes from. I think that is such a red herring. I have no reason to believe that the DNC server ever was relocated out of the United States to Ukraine. And wherever Trump got that, this is some garbage. I mean, there, believe me, there's a million great journalists debunking Russiagate, none of whom are reporting that the server is in Ukraine. And in fact, part of what Trump says there is... And I forget if he says that in the phone call or he said it in other places, was that the leader of CrowdStrike, Dmitry Dimitri Alpervich or whichever it is, um, that he's a Ukrainian. But he's not a Ukrainian. He's a Russian expat. And there is one Ukraine connection to CrowdStrike that I know, which is that they put out a report shortly after accusing the Russians of doing the DNC hack. They accused the Russians of hacking the cell phones of Ukrainian troops and using that bug on their phones to target their artillery. So whenever they were firing artillery at Russian special operations forces in eastern Ukraine in that war, that then the Russians would hit them back because and, and with deadly accuracy because they had these this uh, software bug malware in the Ukrainian soldiers' cell phones. But then that was immediately debunked. And this was only a month later after they originally came out with this garbage about – 
Russia being behind that hack in the first place. So this was like their next major claim was this essentially, you know, conspiracy nuttery about the Russians seizing, you know, co-opting all the cell phones of the Ukrainian army. And then all, you know, serious computer security experts completely ridiculed them and dismissed them and roasted their asses right off of Twitter. And they had to take it back. And they literally you had uh, I think Joe Biden was citing them at the time. Um, Some of these Democrats were citing them at the time. And then they had to officially retract that accusation. But so that just goes to show how hell bent they were on trying to point the finger at Russia over there at CrowdStrike. So I think Trump is off on some red herring that he read on some goofy website or that Giuliani heard on talk radio or some kind of thing. I don't think that that has and, and you know what? I don't know that Seth Rich had anything to do with this either, but I do have reason to believe that it was a leak and not a hack. And that it was someone from the DNC, possibly Seth Rich. I don't know, but quite possibly somebody else. Respect. And there's a guy there's a guy named Craig Murray who you may have heard of. He's the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, and he was a whistleblower because they were boiling people alive and this kind of thing while oh working for the U.S. God. and the U.K. Yeah, their dictator there is a brutal torturer to oh death for America. God. And so that's where that's where you might have heard of him from. But so anyway, so he was a, a good friend of Assange. And I interviewed him and he told me and I really should have asked him whether it was rich or not. But uh, he told me that he met with the leaker in the woods in Washington, D.C. And I do have further confirmation that he left the a dinner um, early that night because he had something important to go and do. I know that much is true. Um, and he says he went and met in the woods with the leaker. He says he did not receive the leak. If you look it up, the Daily Mail misquotes him saying that he received the leak himself, which is not his claim. But his claim is that he met the leaker and he knows who the leaker is and the leaker is a Democrat and the leaker is not in any way conceivably tied to the Russians whatsoever, has nothing to do with Russia. That this was, you know, essentially like in the narrative about Rit, that he said the way that they were cheating him, that kind of thing. And whether it was Seth, I don't know. But, um, well, I, you know, we see a lot of stuff with, uh, get, I mean, it, it could not be Seth Rich. It's definitely possible, but everything kind of points that way, uh, to who he was, you know, from his position in the DNC, uh, to his robbery murder where like oh it's a robbery that's kind of crazy because nothing was stolen the two gentlemen who they believe was it i say gentlemen very loosely because they were (laughs) ms-13 those two guys are dead uh i mean there's a lot of stuff that like man that would be a real crazy quinkadink if it wasn't him now we're never going to solve this mystery right now right now because neither of us were there neither of us were in the woods when that gentleman came but what i want to get back to is somewhat of uh you know you were just talking about boiling people alive you know these wars and uh you know i am very much a believer that we must show enemy combatants respect as human beings Because when our boys and our girls get caught, I want them to be treated with the utmost respect as a human being. Yes, we are in war. Yes, war is ugly. But there are rules to war and so that these people don't get, 
like destroy. We're already hearing about the bubble, the, the the boiling of human people alive. To me, that's just absolutely disgusting. disgusting. Now we have this Navy SEAL Edward Gallagher. Do you know anything about that? Because it's such an insane story. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, everybody in his unit testifies against him. Uh, the Navy wants a drop hammer on this guy, and Trump steps in and basically pardons him. To me, this is another reason. When, when, when people at the Washington National Gang boo him, when, when Aaron over there, who I love with all my heart, hates him, I go, I guarantee you none of it's about stuff like this. It's all bad man, you know, orange man bad. What, do you know anything about this? Yeah, well, okay, so um, the story is, and he was acquitted of this, but it seemed like a pretty compelling narrative that what had, he was really charged with in the murder of this one Iraqi was that the guy was wounded and he was on a stretcher, he was being worked on, and that Gallagher just pulled out a knife and stabbed him in the neck and killed him. Oh, and there was another accusation that he had killed a little girl, like with a sniper rifle, or at least at long range with a rifle, had killed a little girl and an old man. I believe, I forget which one was walking across a bridge at the time, and he just essentially shot them and laughed. And I think there's plenty of good reason to believe these accusations, despite the fact that he was acquitted, because, you know, the way all the, if you go back and look at all the journalism about this, and in this place, I think we all already know this, that Navy SEALs are going to let each other get away with just about anything. And the fact that half of this guy's squad turned on him is essentially, you know, up near the border of beyond a reasonable doubt already that these men were willing to risk everything. You know, you talk about thin blue line. This is a very thick green line that these guys are behind out there fighting. They don't turn each other in. Special operations forces, they don't turn each other in and testify against each other on something like this over something made up. And, I mean, if there are a lot of cases of that, I guess I'd be amazed. I'm not the world expert on that. But the way it usually works is everybody gets away with everything except the most egregious cases. And... Otherwise, you know, we're just going to not file a report on that, boys, and go on with our lives is the standard operating procedure. And the fact that you had all of these guys willing to testify against him, I think, you know, is really bolsters the case that that narrative was true. And they were all agreeing with each other. And at his trial, it became real controversial and guys changed their testimony. I know at least one witness, essentially the state's witness, got up there and said, oh, I never said that. What, saw him murder somebody? No, in fact, actually, I'm the guy that stabbed the guy and killed him, not him. Oh, my And so God. it was like, yeah, right. We all know that you're, you know, essentially just playing a game here. But there's your reasonable doubt right there for your court-martial, you know, even though this is the same guy who apparently was believed by the prosecutors when he testified that it was Gallagher who had done this. And that was what everybody else had said to and whatever that was enough to get him acquitted of all, but one of the the minor charge, I forgot which was the minor charge, but then, so there's actually a great article by Mark Perry and the American conservative about this. I talked with him about it the other day. Um, It's actually the most recent interview on my site. And he's talking about how, you know, so you have Navy SEAL team six and you have the Delta force and I guess it's the 73rd Infantry Division of the Army and the Air Force Special Air Corps uh, Group. These are the very top tier special forces, the Joint Special Operations Command. 
But then below them, you have sealed team one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever. You have all kinds of Rangers and Green Berets and uh, Marsoc and Force Recon in the Marines and all of these others. And there's like 60, 70,000 guys in this special operations. That's SOCOM. And essentially the narrative is that the SOCOM guys, and this guy Gallagher is from SEAL Team 7. It's six. Those are the the, the most famous guys, the ones that killed bin Laden and all that. Um, but this guy was from SEAL Team 7 and SOCOM. And essentially the narrative is that these guys have been way out of control and it ain't just Gallagher. That there's less and less and less discipline all the time as these wars drag on. There's been reporting, it's in my book, Fool's Errand, about war crimes in Afghanistan where even the top tier guys, the Delta Force guys and the Navy SEALs are going around with these ceremonial hatchets and then, you know, disfiguring and dismembering bodies, committing, you know, um, oh desecrating bodies, committing horrible war crimes against, you know, uh, against the people there. And this stuff, it just kind of spread. So then what happened was they brought in a new guy to be in charge, a new admiral who himself was a former SEAL and should have had all the credibility in the world to say, all right, that's it, as Mark Perry puts it. Everybody has to shave your beards. Everybody has to crop your hair short. Everybody has to stand up straight. All these you know, rules about how uh, we're the special ops so we don't have to be ship shape are now canceled. You absolutely have to be up to Navy regulation, if you're talking about the SEALs, up to Navy regulation on every little thing in the world and all these lines you've been crossing since Rumsfeld are now over and and now we're going to reinstitute discipline. And one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to prosecute some of our worst offenders to show that we mean business. After all, you know, the, essentially the deal is these are hired killers. These are trained mm -hmm. killers for the U.S. government trained to deliver massive amounts of violence the, the, with literally the ability to destroy an entire nation in an hour. No question about that. And so – and and down from there, too. But the point is that they must be under an order of discipline and law and control by officers. They're not supposed to be hired murderers. They're supposed to be hired soldiers, hired fighters for, you know, fighting other states or fighting terrorists or real threats, not just being unleashed like rabid dogs to do violence. And when they are unleashed, then we see them commit war crimes. It's happened repeatedly in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places during the terror wars where innocent people are deliberately targeted and killed. And the way that you prevent that is you have officers who do not allow that kind of stuff and they make it very, very clear how tight discipline is to be handled. So in other words – if you're going to have a military, it's supposed to be bound by the law very tightly or else what do you have? You have, you know, a, a lawless armed mercenary force. And then at that question is just how lawless are they? Do they have to respect their commanding officer's orders at all? In fact, do they have to respect the civilian leadership's orders at all? You know, I knew a guy in the 1990s who would tell he was a former Marine special operations guy. And he told me that the Delta Force, the very top tier special operations guys, the guys who killed the Branch Davidians, that they oh, called Bill Clinton that. Bill. They called him by his first name to his face. I'll tell you, here's what we're going to do, Bill. And now none of us respect Bill Clinton, right? But the point is, well, wait a minute. 
These guys are a thousand ranks down the ladder from him. He's the elected commander in chief, and they might be the baddest guys in special operations. But what the hell do you mean they call the president by his first name? And in a disrespectful way, right? Not that they've been invited to for barbecues on Friday, (laughs) but this is how they speak to him in the Oval Office. As though because in reality they know that, hey, without them, he's not really the president of anything, is he? That's what makes him the president is that they do what he says. But so then, you know, they feel that big about their own selves, too. And we see this with the CIA all the time. Look at the way the CIA took on the Senate over the torture report or, you know, look at the way the CIA took on Donald Trump. Can you imagine the CIA framing up a major party candidate for president of the United States? Well, guess what? They can. No problem. That's just Tuesday to them. Unbelievable, dude. It is unbelievable the lawlessness that's happened. And, you know, it's like I'm watching all these uh, these um, riots going around around the country. I mean, around the world. Excuse me, not in the United States. Unbelievably. <laughs> We're docile here. But the rest of the places, everybody's rioting and striking and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I watch as cops come. And I tell people, man, it's like my grandfather was a cop. I have two... Uh, relatives in law enforcement. I have a buddy who just called me. He's entering law enforcement. And, like, I realize, uh, you know, that there is lawlessness without some sort of law enforcement. But I always tell people, man, when when the government comes, the crackdown on dissidents, it is the cops that come. It is the ex-Marine. Like, when we're talking, like, we're seeing a real assault right now in the Second Amendment. And what that represents. And everyone's like, well, when the Second Amendment was there, they were using muskets. Yeah, because they were fighting muskets. If we've seen right now through Barack Obama and Donald Trump is the militarization of our police force. That these these Hobunk sheriff have giant military weapons to go and knock on a door of a grandma whose music's playing too loud. You know? We see that's where brutality comes from. And my buddy has a funny joke. It's like, and if this is too crude for you, my apologies, but it's like ass eating is kind of like police brutality. It's uh, been around forever. Just now people are filming it. That's the difference, right? And uh, (laughs) and it's my friend Brett Eckerson's joke. It's his. It's so funny. It was just uh, so credit him for that. But um that, you know, it's just like, this is where we're going to right now, which, you know, police brutality, which will lead into, I want to talk to you about Waco if you still have some time, but what are your thoughts on uh, police brutality right now? Because I I believe people need to really understand that, you know, when, when a cop takes out somebody, now now, listen, Dakota pipeline, those, that was a civil, uh, for sure. Peace protest. People were hanging out. They were doing training exercise on those people. That's when we saw the first time they were using weaponized drones on civilians. And I remember when they were talking about this, uh, this, like, um, this, this kind of the sound, um, the, the sound, sound that thing. fucks up your head. They would show it was like a drawing of it, and the and the people they were using on pro. One was holding a sign that said "peace." I'm like, why are you using on those people? And that kind of showed me the insight of what they're using. It like we are paying for our own captors to get new toys. What are your thoughts on that, Scott? 
Yeah, well, I got a few of them. I mean, the root of all evil here, of course, is the war on drugs and the prohibition of any of these substances. And I mean, you got to admit, we've made major gains in the last 25 years in legalizing pot since California first legalized medical pot. That was in 1997, something like that. And in the 20 years since then, it's we've made major progress. And yet at the same time, there's essentially zero discussion on any kind of major public level about legalizing heroin and cocaine and about getting serious about the economic reasons and the, the logical reasons why prohibition just can not work and why all of the arguments for keeping the war on drugs just don't add up. We just haven't had that. And so we have a crisis in this country. We have many crises coming from this. Uh, you know, the first one, well, I don't know in what order you rank them, but I think one of the most important ones is the racial tensions in this country right now. I think huge proportions of that come from problems with police violence and that huge proportions of that police violence comes from the war on drugs. And for that matter, a huge percentage of the violence in the neighborhoods that the cops are arresting people for real crimes – that those crimes are also related to gang war over drug turf and this kind of thing. These are all external consequences from the drug war itself. Just the same, another major part of it, of course, is fatherlessness too. And, you know, not just broken homes, but fathers being away permanently off in prison um, and, and separated from their families. And that's the most dangerous force in society when it comes to street crime, of course, is fatherless teenagers and yeah. young 20-somethings. <laughs> you know, um, that's that's where the problem is. And if they had a dad, they wouldn't act like that They because they would suffer the consequences. And so these kinds of things all kind of stem from the war on drugs. But at the same time, you know, and I don't have all the economic numbers in front of me and whatever – but for various historical and current reasons and blame goes all around and whatever, but minority groups in America, particularly blacks and Hispanics, on average make less money, live in poorer parts of town than the majority of white people and oftentimes live very separate lives. And they're on the receiving end of this much more than white people are proportionately speaking. And the white people who are the victims of the drug war by and large are more powerless people in rural areas yes. who don't have much kind of political influence. They're poor whites out you know, on the outskirts of town and this kind of thing. Whereas the people who actually are part of the political class, they do not feel or hear – any part of opposition to this policy. They're surrounded by judges and prosecutors and lawyers and cops and businessmen and people who think that this status quo is fine and it's the only choice and what else could we possibly do? Meanwhile, the people on the receiving end of this are screaming that we're being treated unfairly. Please stop. And the people with the power can't even hear them. And when the people with the power hear them, you know, they just get reacted against. And you got to blame the left for this, too. They, they just made a huge mistake after the Mike Brown killing in St. Louis to in Ferguson there to call their movement Black Lives Matter, because uh, as one uh, later, it turns out, horrible person pointed out at the time who was being sympathetic at the time when he said it, he said, look, what they're really saying is this doesn't concern you. 
that this is just us. Well, blacks are only 13% of the population. It doesn't make sense for them to name their anti-police brutality movement. This only concerns us. Don't you bother taking our side because we blame all of you for this anyway or whatever. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So so then people who – white people who are not cops, white people who never supported the drug war or even thought about it, white people who never wanted to see anyone treated unfairly no matter what color they are, are essentially being told that – You're the bad guy along with the brutal police officers, and this is all your fault, rather than, hey, man, why don't you take my side and turn against these cops because you're a lot more like me than you are like them? Yeah. And there's plenty of flaws and fault to go around on all sides of this, too. I'll give you another example is the the, uh, uh, victims of the second Waco massacre where the cops shot all of these bikers. At the, uh, you know, it's not Hooters, but something like that, the Mount Mount Rushmore or whatever restaurant. And the cops just murdered all of these guys. I think 10 guys got killed, something like that. And it was a horrible case of police brutality against essentially middle class white guys. I guess some Hispanics, but it was two different biker gangs, but pretty official kind of upper middle class biker gangs, I think. You know, not like real old Hell's Angels, but uh, and they were eating at a pretty nice restaurant. But so they should have immediately said, OK, Black Lives Matter, we're with you and, and we sure would appreciate some support from you. So just like Black Lives Matter should have all raced to Waco to say we love you, we support you, we're on your side. And now you can see what we're talking about. They do this to you, too. Instead of that, they said and I saw this on Twitter. Some of the leaders of Black Lives Matter were saying, ha ha, now you know what it feels like. It happened wow. to you, too, blah, 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 blah. And taking this controversial stand, you know, when uh, against them when they should have been making allies. And, you know, part of this was based on a misunderstanding, too, when the Bundy family sees that thing in Oregon, that that government, um, you know, monument or whatever it was in Oregon, uh, where later they killed that guy Finnicum. Yeah. Uh, it was the hostage rescue team, Waco killers that that fired the first shots there and got him killed. But during that, I was arguing with some Black Lives Matter people on Twitter and I was saying, listen, guys, these guys are victims of the police and there's two kinds of people in this world. OK, government employees and everybody else. And instead of fighting with the right. When they're in your exact same situation, you should be the bigger man. You should take this opportunity to reach out to them in solidarity and say, this is how we feel, too. It's just like you. And then, you know what? It's sad, really. But this young lady responded to me and she showed me a picture of the Bundy guys. And one of them had a sign that had the red circle with the line through it. And it said, no BLM. And she thought that that meant, no, you know, down with Black Lives Matter, that he was anti-Black Lives Matter. And I'm like, no, young lady, that's the Bureau of Land Management. The yeah. federal police, <laughs> the police are oppressing this guy. You think just because he's white he has power? He doesn't have power. He's the victim of power. And then – but you know what? Like I don't know. Only libertarians apparently can – have the the willingness and I guess the ne- it's the necessity to see all sides because we're such a small minority viewpoint. We have to try to reach out to the left and the right and to see their points of view and to encourage them when they're good and scold them when they're bad and this kind of thing. And it just seems like such the obvious case that the problem here is not just race. The problem here is 
the cops are a government program. Yes. They're going to do nothing but grow and grow and grow and find more and more excuses and more and more things to do. The same with every state legislature in this country. They do nothing but pass laws and pass laws and pass laws. The courts do nothing but you know, hold, uphold new restrictions all the, time. all the time. Everybody's in violation of everything. If we had total enforcement of the law, all 330 million of us would be in the penitentiary. That's the source of the problem is yep. there is no rollback of the steady encroachment by the police state on all fronts. I just want to say something real quick about, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. You know, through research, people found that basically it was uh, sponsored by George Soros. Okay. Uh, yeah, but th- so is legalizing pot. You know, I mean, just because George Soros touches something doesn't well, make it wrong. Uh, I mean, we could have people- a debate on that, man. You know, it's like he's he's a agitator and instigator, and uh, and just be you know a broken clock's right twice a day. So exactly, he's right on but one this thing. is one of the times he's he was a- right. Right. Okay. Okay. But that doesn't mean the guy doesn't represent something. I let me get in. He's also behind the ACLU, which I support as well. So it's like we could sit there. Just hear me out on my point before before you get uh, upset with what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are certain things that this man does to agitate. Black Lives Matter was supported him and it was very much done. Just like when we see people on Twitter and how they, these blue checkmark people. And, you know, when you have the Asian lady who is actually giving a promotion at the New York Times saying white people should die. These things are all psychological games to get us all to fight with each other. Okay, so when you had Black Lives Matter, you had them taking that Trump guy. and They're like beating him up and filming it. You're like, these are all psychological things to get us all to fight with each other that people that. So what happens is you have these opportunists, okay, who uh, take advantage of an opportunity given to them to promote something so that people who feel disenfranchised. And, and, and powerless get a moment going look see these guys are stepping on your throat and they're pieces of shit and they hate you because of the color of your skin and because someone like uh, 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 Hillary Clinton has white skin and my cousin's husband who's in jail for fucking cooking meth is white they associate them with each other and they don't realize it's not uh, 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 power doesn't go vertical it goes horizontal and they don't want to understand that because there's agents of chaos such as the blm who is out there fucking telling them oh white cops white people white dude there's more white people shot by cops than black people now i am not taking away the fact that institutional racism is 100 percent at the rot of our legal system and law enforcement, man. And that the destruction of the black family unit is a giant reason why we've seen chaos in the black community. And that's why when, uh, this is a, this is a comic thing, but when they go, when Asians go after, uh, Shane Gillis for Asian jokes that he did, and they tried to equate it to this them being held down by the man. And when you look at them, they have the highest standard of living and the most two parent, the highest rate of two parent family households. That's a giant, giant indicator that you are not oppressed because the black family unit has been destroyed from the top to fill their prisons. These are chaos to each other. Like they, there are so many people just getting us to fight with each other that if you actually sat down and you, you had someone, and I'm going to say this, a white supremacy group guy, and you had a gangbanger sit down and you actually go, really, why are you part of these groups? They would tell you we're, we feel hopeless. 
We feel powerless. And these people, these people empower us to believe in ourselves that this other group of people trying to hold us down, whether it's gangbangers believing all white people are against them or fucking white supremacists who are dumb enough to think the Jews are trying to hold them down. <laughs> like these are real things. It's all psychological welfare, warfare, excuse me, to get us to fight with each other because that's why they got a false flag the fuck out of everything because they, it, if we all came together, we realized that we're all lo- like what you were saying to those activists and those people who are bitching about white people. It's like, dude, you're on the same plane as these people. We, the, the, the police corrupt, the p- police brutality is as bad against poor whites as it is against poor blacks or, or uh, maybe disproportionate towards poor blacks, but definitely a large section of the white community is disenfranchised. If you go to where, my, right. where I grew up, it is poor white trash. Born in the world with two strikes against them, no hope, drug-addicted family, no clean clothes, no clean underwear, going to school with no fucking money. Where am I talking about? Am I talking about Cortland, New York? Am I talking about Gary, Indiana? It's the same fucking thing. But these powers get us to fight with each other all the time. And it's, it's, it's fucking mental warfare. Yeah. Well, there's two major things I have to say about that. One is people are so damn dumb. They fall for it every time. They just love it. And in fact, like if there was nobody pushing this stuff from the top, it's the simplest, easiest explanation because you can see it with your own eyes. What's the difference between you and a cop? Is it the skin or is it the color of the uniform? And you could pick either one, but either way, you're only using 90% of or 90 points of, of your whole IQ. But it's like, it's, it's that it's just the easiest way to form a judgment is to not to sit and read and think hard, but just to point fingers and yell and all of these things. And, and people collectively blame, you know, that you get, you know, all of these people are guilty for what one person did, or all those people are guilty for what these people did. And this kind of deal. And that's just the way people think anyway. You know, part of it, I hate to say this, is just because of the English language. It's a very commie language. And there's there's so it's it's like it's built in that everything is, you know, we and our and they and us and all of these things are just they're built into the way we describe all this stuff so much that it becomes just way too easy to oversimplify, to abandon you know, an attempt to really discriminate between who, I mean, in the good way, discriminate between who's who and what it all means versus just lumping things together. And then as far as the psyop thing goes, I don't really know, but I do have to tell you that I kind of suspect that somebody did decide in this century that, you know, what we really want to do in the universities is we want to promote this social justice stuff yeah. and environment to absolutely the nth degree in order to marginalize that anti-war sentiment on the left that we were talking about before to just if if the most dangerous threat to the national security state in the bush years is a growing left-wing consensus that we just can't keep doing this stuff then how do we get at them and how we get at them is we get them crying about somebody call them names and make that 
the biggest issue. And because everybody's always calling everybody names, so there'll never you'll never run out of never. controversy never. along those. And let's that's not your- look at Scott. Also, take a look at the fact that what are we doing to these kids? We're setting them up for failure. Meaning, we're setting them up to believe that everybody wants to hear them bitch and moan all the time. So they go in these very protective environments in college where they have safe spaces and they're marching. And by the way. They're ruining their greatest sex and drug time in their life. You have very little responsibility in college, and you should be partying and banging everything that moves and having a great time. And all you're doing is you're putting on expensive boots and marching and bitching and moaning. But when you get to the real world, very quickly you learn nobody wants to hear your bitching and moaning. What happens there? They get fractured. Their, their mind fractures because no one wants to hear it. And now they're depressed. Now they're in therapy. Not, not nothing. I have, I go to therapy too, but they're on all these psychological meds now, which fits in the pharmaceutical stuff. And they're never happy because they're taught that th- this, the believe in this idealism and not that, Hey man, this is a world and you're dealing with different energies and you're going to agree with some and you're not going to agree with others. Okay. And a big thing for me, it's like, you know, the, the, the liberal left or whatever we want to call them, uh, you know, I don't know how much you've read the Unabomber, but I have a T-shirt that says Unabomber was right. <laughs> and uh, it basically breaks down that the, uh, you know, that rich trust fund kids are going to hijack the left and make political correctness something. Because we've talked about on the show about like if you're born to the best hospitals, you go to the biggest mansions when you're born, you grow up in these mansions, you go to the fucking plushest schools, you go to Yale, you go to Ivy League schools, you get juiced into uh, internships and you get the best jobs real quick. You go to the most exclusive restaurants and exclusive nightclubs and you just, you, you know, everybody you know gets you a job and the best gigs. You don't ever feel real world consequences, okay? Ever. So uh, emotions are real world consequences because emotions make you feel and you can't legislate out emotions, okay? So what do these people want to do? They want to turn to the government to get away from these things because what are the two things that can hurt them? Emotions and physical violence. And we're all against physical violence, unnecessary physical violence, okay? But stuff like guns, Okay, and and meanie jokes. They want to legislate <laughs> those out and give all the power to the uh, uh, to the government. But what I always say is, when the government comes to attack, when I said this earlier, when they come to crack on dissidents, they send the police. And what did we see with Waco? Waco was the government dealing with dissidents, and it was painted as crazy religious gun people. But was there more to that? Well, Hong Kong. Look at Hong Kong. They got no guns. The cops are literally shooting at people. Yeah. And they just sit there and get shot at and just post videos and hope I that the United States I tell people all this all the time. Up. Look at what's going on in Europe. Look at what's going on in Brexit. Asia. They, they Look, every time they take away guns, there's mass genocide and then there's a police state. But back to the, uh, the branch civilian, what went down there? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think you're right that... You know, what you saw at Waco is what you would see constantly if you had a new assault weapons ban and a real attempt to confiscate semi-automatic rifles from Americans is you would see Wacos everywhere and it'd be an absolute catastrophe. Um, So there's a real warning in this. It's not just a curiosity of a thing that happened one time. There's important lessons for everyone in this. And 
you know, uh, one of them, it does regard uh, what we were talking about before about the liberals. And one of the things about the, the story of Waco is that at the end of the George H.W. Bush years was the Ruby Ridge massacre. And well, it wasn't really a massacre, but the federal marshals killed a guy named Randy Weaver's son and his dog. And then the next day or I'm sorry, a couple of days later, the FBI sharpshooters from the hostage rescue team uh, shot his wife in the head as she held her baby on the front porch under under military rules of engagement, you know, shoot on site and this kind of thing. And so this was the Ruby Ridge uh, crisis, uh, PR fiasco from the government's point of view. And even though it was the FBI and the marshals who had actually done the killings, it was the ATF who had set up the guy in the first place. They had attempted to – first they had entrapped him in order to try to flip him and turn him into an informant. And then he refused to go along with that, so they charged him. Then they sent him the wrong court date. Then when he missed his court date because they deliberately sent him the wrong date, then they sent the marshals up the hill, and that was how the whole crisis broke out. So the whole thing was the ATF's fault in the first place. And when this is uh, at the end of 92, now beginning in 93, the Bill Clinton Al Gore government is coming in. The Bill and Hillary and Al Gore government is coming in. And the ATF wanted to do a publicity stunt in order to show that. Oh, I should mention Al Gore wanted to do had a program called Reinventing Government where they were going to do reforms inside the executive branch. And one of those was going to be folding the ATF into the Justice Department. It was under Treasury. And they were going to make them literally, not just figuratively, but literally the little brother of the FBI inside justice. And they were really upset about that. They wanted to stay at Treasury and they didn't want that to happen. And so they launched what they called Operation Showtime, against the Branch Davidians. The whole thing was a publicity stunt in the first place. And what the lesson was supposed to be was, look at us attacking rednecks. This guy has a mullet and drives a Trans Am and drinks Miller Lite or whatever. And so we're going to make an example out of him to show these Democrats that their fantasies of gun control, that it will be all implemented against white right-wingers that that's essentially what we're here for, right, is to play into this whole new Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, liberal kind of zeitgeist of the moment. And so that was why they had picked this fight with David Koresh was because he looked like a redneck. Now, what's, you know, an irony about all this is that, in fact, almost half the population of the Branch Davidians house there were black and Uh, Part of the reason that the ATF really targeted him was because they were the ones who were white supremacists and they were accusing David Koresh of miscegenation and race mixing and that that couldn't be allowed. So in the name of gun control, they were going to go in there and smash this guy's church and and all his people. And so um, now this is one month and one week into the Clinton administration. And I don't know if he gave any kind of sign off on them going. I'm sure they were caught by surprise by this in the White House. It was the ATF that had launched this thing. And what happened was they had no element of surprise whatsoever. The Davidians knew they were coming for weeks anyway. There was an undercover agent for the ATF named Robert Rodriguez. And David Koresh had tried to convert him. By the way, they were all firing guns at the gun range out back. No problem there. Um, and Koresh had said, listen, Robert, I know that you're an ATF undercover agent or FBI or whatever it is. And 
I want you to join my group and this and that and whatever. Now, I know you guys are planning something here, but I really wish you wouldn't. And all this, this is going on for a long time before the attack. Then the morning of, they um, saw a postman and said, hey, something big's going down over at the Branch Davidian property lately. But guess what? The postman was a Branch Davidian. And he went home and said, hey, man, there's something going on out there today. They're out there preparing for some kind of terrible oh thing that's going to happen. Oh, my God. So, so then you had the, the local TV news cameras, and I think they came from as far as Dallas, and certainly all the local TV news cameras. They were already there in the Branch Davidians' front yard filming before the ATF got there. Wow. So the Branch Davidians, there was zero element of surprise whatsoever. Then the ATF, they roll up in these cattle trailers – Flatbed cattle trailers covered in tarps. If the Branch Davidians had wanted to massacre every single last one of them right then, they could have. And the idea that they had ambushed them somehow and lured them into this trap was just proven right there to be a lie. In fact, all of the cops were able to get out of their trucks, and then they started approaching the house, and the first thing they did was shoot the dogs. And the Malamute Huskies, who were in their pen, by the way, you can see in the video they're in their pen, which has a roof on it even. It's chicken wire with a with a uh, ceiling on it, a roof on it. Um, and uh, they shot the Malamute Huskies in the uh, pens. And then Koresh opened the door and said, wait, wait, there's women and children in danger in here. Don't do it. And they shot right under his arm and shot his father-in-law in the sternum and dropped him dead right there. So at that point, Koresh closed the door. Fall, he's unarmed. Closed the door, falls back into the house, and the cops all just opened fire on the house. And so at that point, some of the Branch Davidians grabbed their rifles and began to defend themselves. And those are just the facts. So the ATF were the ones who fired the whole thing. And one more thing before I um, turn it back over to you here for a second, just about that morning, is the morning of the raid – a guy named Paul Fatta, F-A-T-T-A, he was the head of the Branch Davidians gun business. He ran the gun business, and he left their property that morning with a dually pickup truck, so like a F-250 or 350 dually, with a camper shell on back and towing a U-Haul trailer, both full of rifles, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rifles. And why was he doing this? To conceal the evidence and go dump it all in the lake? No, he was on his way down here to Austin to sell them at the gun show. That was his legal Texas gun business, just like tens of thousands of other Texans are in the gun business. Nothing criminal about it whatsoever. And when Paul Fatta got down here to Austin and set up his table at the gun show and then heard that something had happened – at the Branch Davidian place up in Waco, he called the FBI and said, I'm Paul Fatta. I run the gun business for the Branch Davidians. Are you looking for me? I'll turn myself in right now. And they told him, no, you're fine and let him go and whatever. He clearly hadn't done anything. Later, they charged him with conspiracy to murder federal agents. And even after he was acquitted, he was sentenced to 10 years or more. I forget exactly. Uh, He did more than 10 years on a charge that he was acquitted of. If you want to ask me about how that happened at the trial, I can explain. Oh, my God. We need to do a whole episode on just this. Oh, man. Probably, yeah. Scott Horton. Scott, this has been one of my favorite episodes, man. Uh, I hope you had a good time coming on. I hope you all. Absolutely. Uh, enjoyed it. I, I love the conversation. I love the dialogue. I love uh, the back and forth. And uh, you are always welcome here. Uh, I know our listeners are going to love this episode. Can you please uh, tell them where they can find you and uh, your social media, your YouTube, anything you want them to know? Okay, sure. So 
The first thing is I am the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's libertarianinstitute.org. And we're just starting off our winter fundraising campaign. If anybody's interested in that, we got all kinds of great kickbacks and stuff for you there at libertarianinstitute.org slash donate uh, to find out the different tiers and all that cool stuff. Um, then I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. Again, the most important project in the world there. Uh, Eric Aris and Jason Ditz and all the great people there at antiwar.com. Um, anti-interventionism from a libertarian perspective, but including left, right, and everybody who's got it right there. Um, my show is at scotthorton.org, and I've got 5,000 and something interviews going back to 2003 there for you now, all free in MP3 format for you there at scotthorton.org, and you can sign up for the podcast feed and all of that stuff. And then I wrote a book, I think you can see it back there over my shoulder, uh, other side, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> And then there's also uh, the great Ron Paul, the white one there is the great Ron Paul, the Scott Horton show interviews. That's a transcript of all of my interviews with Dr. Paul from 2004 through 2019. And um, so you can find all those. Uh, Fool's Aaron is at foolsaron.us and they're both on Amazon.com. I think that's everything. Scott, you're a G. We appreciate you. We're going to end the show with what everybody's done here. Aaron, thoughts? Uh, wow. Um... Me? Yeah. No, no, oh, I'm no, sorry. No, no, no. I, I, we I have a thing him. on this show called Aaron Thoughts. He gives us a, his wrap up. Oh, from I'm sorry. A, I just couldn't hear. No, it's fine. Aaron sorry, Thoughts. Um, uh, I really enjoyed Scott. Uh, that's all I have to say. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You've really grown soft in your, in your uh, absence, Aaron. The fact that Aaron, a Hollywood bleeding liberal, loves a Texas libertarian means we all have coming, a chance. He might everybody. be coming over for That's Trump. Great. You know, Scott, I'm, thank you very much. I'm sorry, m- I couldn't hear what he said, but thanks. He said, <laughs> hey, Scott, he said he really enjoyed the interview and he thought you were great. And that, to me, is a grand slam home run. That's rare for, cool. that's rare well, for thanks Aaron. Thanks very much to all of you guys. Thanks for coming out. Well, uh, let's uh, set something up in the new year to uh, go deep into the uh, Branch Civilian. He's Scott Horton. That's XG. I'm Sam Tripoli. Guys, we'll talk to you guys soon. It was a pleasure to be back in the uh, studio. Hopefully we'll do it again soon. Guys, take care, and we'll see you guys soon.